Welcome to Geopolitics Decanted. I'm Dimitri Alperovich, Chairman of Silverado Policy Accelerator, a geopolitics think tank in Washington, D.C. I'm hosting a special show today with a co-host, a very good friend of mine, Patrick Gray, who's currently here in Washington, D.C., visiting us from Australia. Our guest today is Alicia Garcia Herrero, an economist living in the Asia Pacific, who is currently a chief economist for the Natixis French Investment Bank. She's also a senior fellow at the Bruegel Economic Policy Think Tank in Europe and is an adjunct professor at the Hong Kong University of Science and Technology, as well as a member of the advisory board of Berlin-based think tank on China, Merix. Among other things, she's a world-class expert on the Chinese economy, which is the subject of today's podcast. Alicia, welcome to the show. Very, very, very happy to be here with you. Fantastic. Well, Alicia, you are a very close watcher of China and Chinese economy. You, you live in the region. And I guess my first question is, what is going on right now? For years, we've seen articles talking about how Chinese economy is unstoppable. It's about to eclipse the United States in terms of overall GDP. And now pendulum has swung all the way over to the other side where people are saying that the Chinese economy is in massive trouble. It will never reach perhaps um, United States in terms of the strength and, and, and the volume of their economy. So what is truly going on from your perspective right now in China? Is, uh, is there systemic trouble brewing or is this just a temporary blip on the horizon? Well, thanks very much for that uh, profound question, including, you know, comparing with the U.S., which is, of course, always interesting, although in a way it wouldn't matter. Yeah, I mean, but but it does matter. You're right. And and I, I would uh, basically answer the question in, in two ways. First, uh, on the actual mm, absolute terms uh, as to what China is going to do and is already doing is basically structural deceleration. That that means that we're not in, in a blip. Um, and we're also not in um, in chaos or in a crisis. We're just in a situation where an economy that has grown very fast for years has exhausted its growth engines. And this is not only China. This happens um, across the board. It happened to Japan. It happened less so to South Korea because South Korea managed to grow faster than Japan for longer. But that's that's the boundary. I mean, how fast do you decelerate over time? Once you reach $10,000 per capita, that's kind of the, you know, what economies do everywhere in the world. And then the question is, will China be uh, an outlier, say South Korea, doing better than average? Or will China be an, you know, an underwhelming compared to others? Uh, even Japan was, was not underwhelming, just to give you a sense of dimension. South Korea, after reaching $10,000 per capita, grew 5.5% for 10 years. The best on earth. Japan, which we think did really poorly, not really, not after it reached $10,000 per capita, but much, much after. I mean, meaning from the 60s, 70s, early 70s, uh, Japan reaches $10,000 per capita for 10 years, over 4% better than most of the European countries and most. So will China be South Korea? No. 
Will China beat Japan? Probably no. Lower. Will China be the worst on earth? No. <laughs> so, you know, what I'm saying is China will be underwhelming for those who thought China would be the outlier and, and uh, positive, I mean. And this, this is actually something most people thought for a good reason. Because from ten from one thousand dollar per capita to to ten thousand during that period, China was the outlier, was the best in class. It was not South Korea, it was China. So so there has to be something, Dimitri, that puts China in a worse bucket now than it was before. So so and we can talk about that. On your second point of the US, with the numbers um I have, which are not very different from even NDRC, the World Bank, you name it, China will grow around, you know, decelerate all the way to 2.3% by 2035. Will this be enough to be bigger than the US? Your question. No. The answer is no. China, however, up to 2035 growing from, say, five, a little bit more than five this year to 2.3, 2035, China will become as big as the U.S., as big as the U.S., about the same. Nobody will be much bigger. However, from 2035 onwards, and this depends on what the U.S. will become, I have no idea about that, but imagine status quo, okay? Imagine growth remains the same, uh, potential growth. China will diverge. From the US and the reason is that from 2035 China's aging will eat up a lot of its growth not yet not yet it's not happening yet because China is still urbanizing and that means creating jobs where they are still very productive in the cities so the bulk of the aging that you know the depopulation happens where nobody cares say in terms of productivity from 2035 maybe even earlier to be frank maybe 2030 we don't know when they, China will end up uh, you know, reaching a urbanization level of the order of the U.S. or any developed country for that matter. When China reaches that level, China's growth will be around 1%. So China will become Japan. So I finish here. So when people tell me, will China be Japan? I say, wait for a while. Not yet. Not yet. But it will become Japan. So your view is that this current situation that we're seeing in China with deceleration is not so much related to a particular crisis, real estate, or even demographics. You don't think it's feeling that pain right now. It's really a structural issue that all countries face, the so-called middle-income trap, that once you reach a certain level, growth just decelerates. Of course, China has had continued growth at really high levels for longer than any country in history, but eventually it still hits that, that limit. So that's a great question. Maybe I should say, just to make it clear, that when I said China was the best in class and now it's actually not so much the best in class, maybe what you just said, especially the real estate, and I will go through other factors, explains that change in class, you know, from the best to not so much, maybe average, if I may, maybe average. And that change is because, and it's not aging, for aging you need to wait because we're still urbanizing. But for... Um, the real estate, yes, you can even estimate how much growth it's shaving up, shaving off the uh, China's uh, growth rate around between a percentage and two percentage points. So China could be growing, you know, something like six and a half this year, had it not been uh, for the real estate. So yes, it is 
pushing growth further down faster, but it doesn't explain the structural trend. So it's just one of those accelerating factors. By May, one more factor, I think these are the two most important, uh, that you really need to consider is the fact that China has invested for so long and so much. And you're talking about 40% average investment ratio. There's no country in the world. Um, all, a lot of that investment is unproductive. We know that. And we can because, because actually Because of corruption, measure. because it's centrally allocated, it doesn't go where it needs to go. Allocated. Yeah. Okay, you may say corruption is part of that, but I don't think that is the bulk of it. Is is that the, allo- the it is allocated in a way that is not market driven? Are you it's telling the, you- it's the ghost cities issue? I guess is uh, yeah, a manifestation of that. Yeah, Alicia, are you saying that central planning does not work well? <laughs> well, I've said that for a long time. <laughs> I can repeat it loud it's a, and clear. It's a shocking. It's um, a shocking revelation, Alicia. I I do just want to ask you something on the housing stuff, though, because you know, for for someone who's not Chinese, right? From for someone who's from outside yeah. of there, you look at the amount of their economy that goes into building housing, and it's I mean, it's something like thirty percent to a third or something of the economy, and then you see that it's stalling. You see that some of these uh, uh, you know gigantic companies that are building uh, housing in China are falling over and you think, you know, if that were happening in a Western economy, it'd be disastrous. Like, it, you know, it would be raining stockbrokers. And and that hasn't happened um, in China just yet. And it doesn't sound like it's like it's going to. Why is it that, yeah. that China can have yeah. a, a disaster in something where, where a third of its con- uh, economy lives and, yeah. and, and, you know, it's it's not the end of the world? Well, this is such a great question, and I'm sorry to say you're asking uh, this question to a person who's gone through two types of real estate crises, Spain and China, meaning same size, absolutely the same size, one third of growth in both cases, so average of 2010 to 2018, say, that's what the real estate sector was contributing to China's growth. In Spain, before 2010, for years, that's what the real estate sector was contributing to growth. Fixed asset investment, a third. It's same. They look like twins, but they're different. And that's why the impact was so different. But when I tell you why they're different, let me add up front that neither of the two is painless or it's just a different type of pain. So in the case of Spain, it was all, you know, this is, of, of course, also the subprime crisis in, in the U.S., but the difference is you, you hold the reserve currency, you guys. We, we don't. <laughs> the euro is not a reserve currency, let alone when they start saying, oh, sovereign risk, you're different from Germany. Certainly not a reserve currency for that matter. So Spain suffered enormously because it was importing all of this capital to finance that overinvestment for the real estate sector. And it cracked and it collapsed because suddenly that financing disappeared and you know you, you just couldn't grow it it went into a huge recession but the adjustment this is the point was fast because there was no choice yeah i mean spain went out of that situation i wouldn't say of course with huge pain but fast because the adjustment was compulsory it had to happen there was no money in china it's japan in the early 90s. It means that you can hide the problems longer because where is the money coming from? The households. Households were financing 
At the peak, 85% of developers' funding was coming from households pre-sales, to be precise. So, you know, they didn't have to even go to the bank. In fact, be- Because pe- people were basically paying in advance before their apartment was yes. built. They were giving the money yes. to the developers, and the developers were using that as financing. Yes. And uh, the, so, first of all, bank, bank exposure to developers is only 2% of their loans. It's very, very small. Why? Because they because the not only the households were coming, uh, you know, with 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 the money is that to a large extent it was their money, not the bank's money. It was not even the mortgage. Of course, they have mortgages, but the share is much smaller than in the West. It's about fifty fifty. Even even because regulation would not allow them to have like eighty percent, uh, uh, you know, uh, payment by the through the mortgage. So that helped a lot because so the people are losing people the money, the not school. the banks, and that's a good thing. Exactly, uh, people people with unfinished units are losing the money. And by the way, in China, you even need to pay the mortgage, even if you don't get your unit. So you know, nobody loses except the households. But the households have so huge savings that you know, in a way, you don't notice that. By the way, they don't even want to consume, no matter what, whether they have no. the ha- savings or they don't. Their, you know, their their propensity to consume is so low. It doesn't make a difference to the economy. So, so you're seeing the impact that you that I just mentioned about a, between a percentage and two percentage points of growth comes from the fact that the developers are no longer investing. That's the only channel you see, you know, in in big in in a big way. That third percent of fixed asset investment in uh, sorry a third from developers is no longer happening. It's growing at, at uh, double digit negative double digit growth minus ten minus eleven. That is the only immediate impact, which is big, but it's not like Spain because people are still consuming what they want to consume because it doesn't affect their their ability to consume. They're not uh, indebted enough, if I may say, to 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 go bust because of the real estate sector. But because the adjustment is not immediate, it will last longer than in Spain, as mm. happened in Japan. And finally, one more lesson from Japan is that, is that it is tremendously deflationary because all of the upstream sectors do not work any longer for the real estate sector. Yeah, iron ore, you name it. And all of that is deflationary for China. And by the way, very good news for the rest of the world. Except Australia that supplies all that iron ore, right? Yes, I'm Australian and I've got to say it's not great news. And I've been watching the Australian dollar. I've been watching the Australian dollar deflate. And it is certainly a a bit of a proxy indicator for the direction commodities are heading in. And uh, yeah. You are right. But ask the Fed if they like it or not. Ask the Fed. Ask the European Central Bank. They love it because... China, China is bringing deflation through lower export prices of goods that we import enormously, a third of intermediate goods in the world that are, you know, that are exported from China to the US, to Europe. So all of that is very deflationary. So you are right. Some people might not like it, but overall, of course, iron ore exporters, but overall for a world which, which was, you know, suffering uh, from very high inflation, this is certainly good news overall. So, so Alicia, one question I have is you mentioned that the Chinese people are not spending a lot of their money and now they're not investing in real estate. So where is it going? <laughs> Wonderful question. 
You know, I remember January. I mean, so many like Bloomberg journalists, everybody was uh, searching. I mean, that, that was the, you know, the goose of the golden eggs. And they had a, a, an expression to describe what was going to happen, which never happened, which was the, the following. Chinese will splash their money, their excess savings in 2022. And, you know, they were even calculating how much tourism to Europe Paris. I remember that it was after zero COVID ends, it's going to be yes. a huge flood of Chinese money all over the world. And it never came. I mean, that was the thing, right? Cause, cause everyone was expecting what happened in the West. I mean, you know, the, the feeling yeah. in Australia where, I mean, a lot of people listening would know, uh, in, in a lot of parts of Australia, we had very serious lockdowns. So when all of that came off, you know, they called it, uh, revenge spending and it was huge yeah. and everyone was expecting it to happen in China. And it just, I mean, it really didn't. Yeah. Not even a ripple, yeah. right? Yes, I, I wrote an op-ed some, somewhere where I said the revenge of the revenge <laughs> because <laughs> it never happened. And it never happened. And listen, this is just fascinating. Excess, what we call excess savings, so basically household gross savings, uh, increased further in 2023. Can you imagine? So it's just mind-boggling that once you reopen and people can go and spend, your savings continue to increase. Why? The revenge of the revenge, because they, they felt unsafe. Why? Because youth unemployment, huge. Disposable income, stagnant. You know, maybe you have money to spend, but you worry about the future. Why would you spend? And frankly, a lot of that was... Uh, there was no government kind of a, you know, like, like in my opinion, push to spend. People think there was, but I don't think there was. Because one of the problems is that the lack of confidence goes everywhere, including the government. So imagine that suddenly you have, like, I, I estimated this number, it's just mind-boggling. In 2019, 150 billion equivalent US dollar, actually actual US dollar, probably most of it, left China for uh, tourism, <laughs> kind of tourism, traveling, let's call it traveling. Of course, you know, the $50,000, you know, um, ticket you can bring with you, that of your grandma, you name it. Yeah, I mean, basically, traveling in China means capital flight. Let's face it. So I don't think this year, given what happened with, um, you know, the, the, the actual situation, uh, by end of January, capital started flowing out, not in, as was the case, December, January, flowing out. There's an, lots of estimates on as to how much has, has left from 150 to 300 billion. We don't see any of that in the foreign reserves. They're stable. But people argue that uh, there was a lot of ex extra dollars kept in the bank. But did, did we see it in the LVMH income statements with Louis Vuitton bags and all these other luxury goods that Chinese are consuming by, in huge volumes? Yes. Uh, well, overseas, you don't see any of that. Mm. It's over. In the mainland, uh, 2021 was a great year. 2022 was not such a bad year because people had nothing else to do. So whenever they could go do something, they would just, you know, there was a kind of a, again, revenge. <laughs> that was a real one, but inside China. But then the, uh, uh, in 2023, I think the mood was so negative, you know, in terms of what's going to happen, that I think uh, all of these uh, luxury companies have done uh, less well than they expected. So, yeah, and, and frankly, this is why excess savings continues to be ex very high and consumption is nowhere to be found. 
I have to say the third quarter GDP, which we got a few, maybe a week ago, so was a little bit better. There was a more uh, consumption of uh, durable goods, such as uh, autos, uh, and not so much only services like re restaurants or, or stuff like that. So it was a little bit better, but a lot of subsidies on the auto part subsidies were extended so and, and by the way we just had the latest uh, data we have had for october finally is i mean the first data that comes in is pmi very very negative so it's they're not out of the woods i think they will finish the year china will finish the year barely five 5.2 something like around five which was the target and the cliff comes next year next year what are they going to do next year so as you probably have heard, the government has announced a trillion RMB in bond issuance. People say, oh, there you go, new stimulus. No, it's not so easy. Half of that is just to, to substitute the issuance, la last year's issuance. Because last year they had to put so much money into the system just to survive, yeah, 3% growth. So they, so if all of that paper from local governments comes, I mean, it's not rollover in, in a nutshell, local governments won't be able to pay salaries. So they need to do that. But that's not new money. It's just, you know, keeping it going. Yeah? And they can't do much more than a trillion because you can tell that, that I think the leadership, Xi Jinping himself, and he said it many times, he just doesn't like leverage. Yeah. And frankly, but they, they, but they have the money. They, they have the reserves if they wanted to spend more, right? They could spend more. Well, the reserves, okay, this is a very interesting question. So let's go through the reserves. Reserves are about three trillion. As I mentioned, and you know, there is, there is a number of, of, of people who've written about hidden reserves, maybe double. I think that's an exaggeration, but it is true that from 2016 to 19, with, with current account surpluses, China didn't see a change in reserves. It was free then. It's free now. And nobody knows where that money, all of those trade surpluses went. So yes, probably there's more dollars around in the economy that they are deploying now, Dimitri, that they're deploying to up, to steam off the outflows, so to, to cover the outflows, the impact of the outflows on, on reserves. But um, the problem, and this yesterday we had a big uh, scare as, as an economist you know, working in a bank. I can only tell you that yesterday, the money market rate, this is RMB, this is RMB, it's not about dollars, went up 50% because suddenly there was no liquidity in RMB. Why? Maybe some institutions can't borrow. Yeah, maybe, you know, maybe there is this fear that some banks are not doing well. I and mean, you, you keep telling well, they, us everything's going to be fine yeah. and that doesn't really sell the message, to be honest. <laughs> no, no, but, but let me tell you why I still think it's going to be fine, but just lower and lower growth, uh, but still not a crisis. What I told you would sound like a crisis anywhere if, yeah. if, if China had a market economy, if banks were private, if, you know, but what's going to happen is that, and it did happen. So the PBOC injected uh, liquidity and probably called up a few banks and said, you're going to lend to that bank. You're going to lend to that bank. You're going to lend to that bank. So it's very hard for those signals that I see to remain entrenched because they just kind of, you know, the, the, the banking sector is dominated by state-owned commercial yeah. banks. I mean, th this is something that I've, I've discussed with a friend of mine who works in yes. fintech in Australia, and he, he pays a lot of attention to China, and he calls it the Chinese government's magic wand, where yeah. because they can effectively just tell people what to do, it's an enormously, 
you know, that's an enormously powerful thing during a, during the early stages yeah. of a crisis. It is powerful, but it can you can hit the wall because mm. if you don't choose the right things to do, eventually you're not going to be productive and your growth rate will just continue to go down. So, so for me, it's a non-crisis type scenario unless they really mess up. But you know, in 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 a, in a in my baseline scenarios, not a crisis, but increasingly misallocation of resources because these banks are not doing what they're supposed to do. And yes, and we're starting to realize, as you said, the world is starting to realize that this is where China is heading. So Alicia, just to close the chapter on the consumer savings, so they're not spending, they're not investing in real estate, they're not investing in luxury goods. So are they just keeping it under the mattress? Okay, so I, uh, you're so smart, Dimitri. I didn't answer your questions. So <laughs> what do they do with the money? Okay, well, it is quite difficult. And, and by the way, now you understand why there's no inflation in China. Yeah, <laughs> because... To, to, to really have inflation, you need to have something to do. You know, I mean, literally, you need to be able to buy stuff to, you know, to, to have that excess demand. No, in China, there's only excess supply because people don't want to buy. And what do they do with the money? Well, and in a way, thanks God. Uh, if I were the, the Chinese leadership, I would say, well, uh, I mean, I would never open the capital account. Never, because all of that money would go elsewhere for a higher return. Imagine now with... Uh, basically yields on the safe asset, yeah, U.S. Treasuries at 5%, there would be no money left. Because the safe asset in China, if you buy your question, if you buy, a, you know, a Chinese government bond, yeah, the safest on earth, going to yield 3%. So, you know, that's it. So, you know, and, and by the way, the supply is limited. So you need to buy, to go to the bank, the bank will offer you structured product, you know, there is a risk because all of this is basically off balance sheet. If, if you want a deposit, it's going to be zero or 1%. That's it. So real rates in China are so low. So, you know, it's like you just put your money there unless you want to take risk. People do. So, so local government financial vehicles are financed by all of those people's money. And they, they, they buy a wealth management product, either generally the bank generally now banks don't offer so many because they need a lot of capital because they are guaranteed uh, and supposedly guaranteed. So they need a lot of capital. So it is a trust company, um, you know, like like basically off balance sheet stuff. And, and then many of these things go bust. So, you know, at the end of the day, people are stuck with very low negative real interest rates. So people leave out of the money that Chinese uh, basically decide not to spend, Dimitri, because that's the money that then finances the economy at a very low cost. As long as they they used it properly, it would be fine, which is the model before 2015, I would say. But because now they increasingly need to put it to cover holes, yeah, to, to, to it's unproductive. So, so in a way, it's, it's a vicious circle. The more you need to put that money in unproduct for unproductive use, the faster China decelerates. This is, this is why from first of the class to so far middle of the class, but it could be even worse if we continue like this. So, so it sounds like this is a really challenging problem for anyone to solve, but how much of this crisis yeah. is compounded by the fact that Xi Jinping basically pushed out Anyone who knew anything about the economy from the Politburo, we just had the former premier pass from a heart attack, alleged heart attack recently. He knew he, he knew something about managing the economy. 
He was pushed out earlier this year. And now you have these strong men, the security people that are in charge of everything. And they're not necessarily the people that may be proficient at managing crisis. Is that, is that making the problem worse or no? I would say that, say, yeah, since imagine I, I happen to be Chinese, otherwise I guess it would be impossible, let's face it. And they, you know, place me at the Ministry of Finance, uh, Madame Liu He, um, there's not many Madame over there, but say, Madame Liu He, come and solve this issue. Just imagine for, for a minute. I wouldn't know where to start, Dimitri. I wouldn't know where to start. This is a planned economy. It is a planned economy. You may say there is a private sector. Yes, we do know there is a private sector, but their ability to, the room of maneuver has shrunk. And therefore, you know, even if they're private, there are many things they wouldn't dare do unless somebody tells them to do that. Yeah. So just imagine anybody who decided to invest overseas, most of them, you know, what happened to them. If you are one of them, you're going to say, you know what, I wait and see. Yeah, I wait and see. And if I happen to be the person deciding, okay, these are the policies that work, I would say, okay, first thing I need to do is uh, land reform, say land reform. This is a mess, land reform. Second, pension reform. We need to, you know, everybody needs a pension. If they have, there has to be portability. If I go to Shanghai, I should get my pension from Tianjin or whatever. And then, you know, somebody's going to tell me, where's the money to do all of that? Madame Liu He, nowhere. Because China's debt already is 100% of GDP. 100% of GDP. And where's that money? I mean, why do they have so much debt if there's no welfare state, if the pension reform has not happened, if there's no land reform? Why? Because it has been spent in military, what they call economic affairs, which is basically subsidies, industrial policy. And, you know, the rest is, I have to say that the, the size of the state is quite small in China. It's not so much, it's not Russia. It's not like, whatever, 60% uh, civil servants, it isn't. But you do have a big um, state-owned enterprises. Some are very success, very uh, cash cows, like the tobacco company. But some are um, sucking yeah, resources because they are uh, unproductive and, of course, unprofitable. So all of that has nothing to do with the welfare of the people. And, and, and I think, ah, and I end, uh, you, you may be surprised to hear, that even counting President Trump's uh, tax reform, you know, which uh, brought uh, the tax ratio to a much lower level, corporate tax, China's corporate tax is even lower. Effective corporate tax. is the, the tax base is very small in China. Can they change that forcefully? But they know that that's only going to create, you know, that the productivity of the economy is going to go down and down. So, so for me, uh, even if it's not even about who is in charge, is that the situation by now, this, this has been years of not doing what they were supposed to do when the money was there. Now it is much more costly and much more difficult. That, so I, I, I don't think anybody would have a, an easy time basically fixing the, the problems and reforming China in a way that it becomes more productive and therefore uh, you know, pushes up growth, uh, never back to the previous levels, but at least, um, and I finish here, at least it um, basically mitigating structural deceleration, mitigating. I don't think they can do that very easily anymore. 
Now, earlier you were speaking, well, I mean, the discussion around pensions brings us back to something you touched on earlier, which is demographics. You know, we, we yeah. are hearing a lot about this demographic cliff uh, in, in China. Yeah. One very interesting thing that happened, geez, it was in the last year or two, is some, some data leaked out of the Shanghai police and demographers got their hands on it and were able to work out that the actual demographic curve in China certainly doesn't appear to match the, the official one. So what it looks like we've got is, is you know, since the end of uh, uh, the one-child-per-family policy, there hasn't been a baby boom. You know, you've got a rapidly ageing population, which is yeah. obviously going to put pressure on things like the pension system. Uh, now, you did mention this, you touched on this earlier, and you said, well, sure. it's not so much of a big deal because, you know, yeah. the only demographics that count are the urbanised demographics. But at the same time, we're seeing really high urban youth unemployment uh, in China. Yeah. And I, I just wondered if you could walk us through the, the demographic yes. mess that is uh, okay. happening in China and, and, and whether or not you think that's going to have an impact in the sort of medium, medium term. Yes. So um, we published a paper on exactly this point that is, as you said, a little bit contrarian because most people think that's the biggest problem China is facing. But, you know, let's let's go back to South Korea. South Korea's fertility rate is the lowest in the world, by the way, Dimitri, with Taiwan. <laughs> so, and this is around 0.58. Not around, that's the number. China is not there yet. But, and this is the thing. Uh, of course, this is a big problem for South Korea. But South Korea's public debt is less than half that of China. Japan's debt, when Japan's uh, fertility rate, uh, sorry, when Japan started its aging problems, yeah, so basically 80s, um, only 40% of GDP. Now it's, you know, it's absolutely nuts, but 230, I believe, uh, public debt. But, but the point is, at the time when Japan had $10,000 per capita and it was starting to, just starting to age, the the burden of that was much less. What I'm trying to say here is that even if I said that maybe the impact on growth is not so immediate because the difference between South Korea, Japan, and China is that China is still urbanizing. Yeah, that, that's the difference. That helps growth, but it doesn't help debt and it doesn't help the pension uh, burden. I mean, the pension burden is less in China because not everybody's covered. I mean, it's basically a question of coverage. So uh, to me, aging brings to start, um, by the way, and the numbers are not yet so bad, uh, going back to, you know, this, this uh, interesting stories, because China's fertility rate has plummeted twice in, in the recent history. One is, the, of course, the one-child policy. Everybody knows about this. What is less known is that China's fertility rate has plummeted again since 2019. 2019, 2021, horrible years. Because in a way, there's been a change in confidence. You can tell, you know, it's like, so that you cannot see yet in the, in growth data or, you know, labor supply data, because these are kids. <laughs> so you need to wait for a few years to see the impact of that additional deceleration in the fertility rate to really measure the full impact of aging or depopulation in China. But I'm not saying it's not important. I'm saying that somehow because it's not so natural. So for South Korea, it goes down, down, down. But in China, you have one-child policy. And now 2019, again, it's, it's not linear. So the impact is not 
uh, so clear and so understandable at first sight. Again, the after they finish urbanization from 2030 to 2035, depending on how much they push, only a depopulation, so aging, will carve out one and a half percentage growth every year. It's huge. It's more than Japan. But it's just not in the same way, in such a linear and immediate way. That, that's, yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I suppose one thing worth noting is that China, I mean, Japan was like this as well, but China and Japan aren't really countries that can compensate for this through immigration. It's, it's just a difficult proposition for them. Yes, uh, I would say that in China, the additional difficult proposition is the size. You know, it's even harder than. Yeah, Japan. how do you, how do you grow the, the how do you grow the Chinese population one percent, right? Like, yeah. So so yeah, it's just very hard. So Alicia, what about the other issue of productivity? Because I've heard estimates that yeah, if only they yeah. can improve productivity, even if they achieve half yeah. the productivity of the United States, they will double the size of U.S. economy, right? Or if they yeah. equal the productivity of the oh. U.S., it'll be quadruple the size of the U.S. economy. Not sure if those estimates are accurate, but. They have a long way to go to improving productivity. Is that a viable option for them? Well, history, uh, Dimitri, Dimitri, you know history better than me, but what I sense when I hear what, you know, whether your question or what I hear um, about the leadership in China, these this, uh, kind of technocrats, yeah, rather than economists, as you, you pointed out, I think that the driving force here is that they truly believe that uh, an economy can grow out of technology. That's it. It's like a, like you know you you land from the moon, you bring technology, you put it there, and boom! Suddenly the country changes. That's never been the case. I mean, never ever in history uh, could you have the same technological impact of a new uh, technological advancement advancement in a country versus another country because a lot of things matter: institutions, rule of law. I mean, we. Everybody and by the way, the U.S. export yeah. controls matter too. Yes. Uh, so let me go to that. But imagine you didn't have any export controls, Dimitri. Imagine the same technology, I don't know, quantum computing in the U.S. and China, I can bet it's not going to have the same impact on productivity because there's many other things that matter. So, you know, this is what I think China, sorry to say, is missing. That is not only about technological advance, it's basically what you do with it. And, and that's why, and, and we wrote a paper, I mean, sorry, I'm making a lot of pu- publicity here, but it's all on, the, on Bruegel's webpage on, on innovation in China. It's a very easy paper because, you know, it's not, it's not supposed to be about describing innovation. It's about the impact of innovation on growth and why it is not working. So we show that it's not working. We show that total factor productivity, sorry for the, but basically productivity, but is not increasing in China, notwithstanding the massive increase in research expenditure. So the money is there. They have more patents than ever. They have more scientific cooperation than ever, scientific publications, but productivity is not growing. So we try to explain what are the bottlenecks. Why is this the case? And at the end of the day, it boils down to institutions, reforms, you know, the things that are absolutely necessary. So you cannot just say, I don't like that. You economists, you go away. We don't believe in reforms. You, I bring all of these technocrats. You know, they know everything that needs to be known about quantum computing. I'm going to grow. That's, that's not the way countries grow. So to me, even if China makes humongous efforts, by the way, research and development, 
as a percentage of GDP has grown more in the US than in China. The gap only growing. China has reached the EU levels, but it has not reached by no means, even South Korea is uh, as a percentage of GDP. But you know, for the US it's not as a percentage of GDP in absolute terms, because your economy is bigger. Plus the productivity of that uh, innovation is not the same. So, you know, I, I just feel that they should, well, again, if I were Madame, uh, whatever, yeah, Liu He, I would say, look, it's great to innovate, but let's create the uh, conditions for innovation to be productive. And I think that's not something they're now kind of thinking through. Fascinating. One other issue I want to ask you about is BRI. So they've launched yeah. this initiative, Belt and Road Initiative, under Xi. And originally, I think they were targeting to spend $8 trillion. I think at this point, they spent over a trillion dollars on these various projects around the world. What do you think is the future of BRI? It sounds like they're running out of money to spend on it. Do you think it's, it's going to wither or are they going to somehow find money to continue spending? This time around, you might not like my answer. So get ready for it. Because yes, I agree. And, and I wrote about, is, is this the death, the, something like, is, is this the death of uh, BRI? Something like that with, with a US fellow, Friedman. We wrote a page saying that, showing that the money was no longer there. This is 2019 already. So it's not new. Of course, with the pandemic, it was dramatic. So not only that, in some countries, China is actually withdrawing. So basically, the net inflows are negative because they are being paid, but there's no additional lending. And you may say, why would a country that is no longer lending or investing in infrastructure, you name it, why would that be a success? But my the reason why I said it could still be a success is that I have realized watching carefully what they're doing is no longer about infrastructure. It's no longer about even lending or, you know, connectivity more generally. It's about foreign policy. It's about security. And I think China's situation today is that they're pushing the narrative. They're pushing all of this, you know, community of shared values, whatever, global uh, development initiative, global uh, civilization initiative, you may say these are empty wor words, but if somebody wants to listen, and there's many in the global south who want to listen, which want to listen, this becomes a, a common mantra. You may say, well, but if the money is not there, they may not follow. Well, it depends on how how infuriated they might be about the West. Yeah. So, you know, I think China is playing, it's like, a, I would say, let me use this uh, expression. I've never written this, but. I would say the BRI is becoming a psychologist, <laughs> meaning it's a way to, you have a problem with the West, come to me, or a priest, if you want. You know, it's more of a uniting narratives, anti-colonialism, you name it, than a money-making uh, institute or a money or a friend lending, but because we have friend shoring. I think Lana, uh, China would like to use the expression Friend, friend lending, yeah? So they lend to the friends. They are no longer lending even to the friends. But the friends are listening because in a way they are absolutely fascinated in a way by this new world of anti-colonialism. So the point for us, I mean, as Westerners at the end of the day, is that, yes, this is an opportunity if we were ready to step up. Yeah? But, but we need to step up because if not, okay, China might not be lending. Maybe. But China is listening. 
you know, but this is the thing. That's why I'm saying, let's be careful. We should be very careful with, with these narratives because they, they are also using BRI, if you look at the what came out of that third summit, to create standards that are different from the West. Yeah, so a very important one that was announced was the global AI governance, which is basically for BRI members. So if all of these countries follow different AI standards, whether it's, you know, ethical standards or beyond, this is a big thing, you know, so... so yeah, I but how much does that matter when all the algorithms, all the training happens basically in the United States, a little bit in Europe, all the chips are being designed here, they're mostly being sold uh, here? This brings me to your question. I, I did hear it and I have not yet uh, taken it, which is uh, our export controls or our containment, to put it uh, bluntly. Uh, can, so can that help? You know, yes, I would say it's clearly helping. Otherwise, China would not be so infuriated and would not even kind of play around this this new uh, rapprochement, you know, with the U.S. as as we saw with the with all of the uh, recent meetings and the, by now, I guess, summit. But I would say that you know sometimes. In the world, there's been uh, occasions where uh, countries accepted uh, second best solutions. Yeah, it, it's not it's not always the case that a, a country would say, you know what, uh, I'm going for the best. No, sometimes depending on your pol political affiliation, your ideology, your just clinging to power uh, situation, you may accept uh, lower standards. So we need to be careful. But, with but this the gap is this, growing so much when you look at the. No, I agree. Power, the grab, power I, I, I actually think the grab. Yeah. I know. Chips and beyond chips. I think if you look at even, you know, AI or if you look at quantum computing, no matter what, you know, I do believe that the gap is. And beyond the chips is also, sorry to say, Dimitri, it's also about uh, the environment in China. Yeah. I mean, like, you need to have people who believe that this is going to be a success. But if the environment is so underwhelming, people don't want, if you don't want to consume, why would you believe that you're going to become, you know, number one in the world in, in, in any form? So I think the environment in China that, that you know, the, the, that heavy, uh, very, very low sentiment about anything is not going to help innovation. So I guess last question for you, just stepping away from China itself. One sort of lesson I'm, I'm, I'm gaining from this conversation is that Going forward, the countries that are going to be successful more broadly, given that everyone is experiencing this fertility trap in the, in the developed world at least, but the countries that are going to be successful are going to be the ones that can have great levels of emigration, right, to keep refueling the, their populations. So if the United States, yes. uh, you know, maybe Canada, maybe a little bit Australia as well, if they can continue accepting immigrants into their country, they can keep good growth levels that will outpace China, Japan, Korea, countries where you don't have this phenomena. Is that right? I think immigration is generally positive. Uh, you need to be careful with uh, basically uh, integration of migrants. I mean, this is something that some European countries are learning the hard way, as you can tell. And you also need to be sure that it overall increases productivity, meaning that that the the labor force 
the new the labor force which is coming goes to the right sectors that you do not inflate the sector because you have that type of labor force so so there has to be there ha there shouldn't be a big mismatch between what you need and what you get in europe is certainly yeah. not well, I, know, I know in Canada and Australia in particular, they have basically a yes. needs-based immigration exactly. policy where, exactly. you know, you can argue about how effective and, and accurate yes, it is, exactly. but the labor departments basically identify which skills they need exactly. and the people with those skills can, can theoretically immigrate. Exactly. Uh, That's what I meant. That it's not only about letting people yeah. in, it's how you, you channel them into the sectors that, are, that actually need them. This is the H-1B visa that we have in the United States where... You know, companies can apply for workers that they need to get this visa. They're very awesome. capped and their quotas per country, but that's essentially our proxy for attempting to do that. But, you know, one thing that we do have in the U.S., even though it's sort of this unstructured immigration policy where we have, obviously, yeah. a lot of illegal immigration that we don't control and other issues. But the one thing that we do have is upward mobility for future generations, right? So even if you're a migrant yeah. that comes over here and maybe not as productive as, as we would like, the chances that their children will be productive, will go to high school, will speak English and potentially even go to college and, and contribute to the society in a much greater way is very high, or at least it has been traditionally, right? So maybe immediately we may not gain a lot from those immigrants, sure. but in the second and third generation, very, very likely we will, right? Yeah, I mean, that, that part is very similar to Europe. I would say Europe, that's the idea that they get into the into education and then but the thing is that in this very complex world you need to make sure that there is no um i mean that the social part of it does work yeah otherwise you get a lot of noise and a lot of problems that we all know i mean and and we've suffered in the past both the us and and europe and and that's that's i think the the difficult part but but china won't have any of those problems or solutions because there will be no immigration in in uh, in big numbers in my view and that means but that uh, china's solution to that is very simple robots basically and ai Th this is the answer to but you know it is hard for me to believe that a society can run only through robots and ai you know it's like like in a way i feel that again i think they're very uh, the chinese leadership I, I sometimes feel they, they only read science fiction books, yeah. sorry to say this, but you know, like literally they have this view of the world where everything can be robotized. Everybody can be. So what are the it's people? A, it's, all, it's all great until the robots unionize basically. And <laughs> yes, that's how we wind totally. up with, and, with the sci-fi yeah, dystopia. And, yes. And you, this exactly. And dystopia kills something that is very, very important, which is people's own illusion, you know, like what they, I mean, their happiness, their, so you need that hap those happy people to be able to create stuff and and to be innovative, you know. So so I feel they're in this trap of believing that you know core innovation, technical innovation is the answer. I don't think that's a way to go to create to create a, again a creative, innovative society. Well, Alicia, just an absolutely fascinating discussion. You know so much about the topic. You live in that region. You follow it very very closely. Couldn't have thought of a better guest on this really, really complicated issue. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you to both. That's it for this episode with Alicia Garcia Herrero. Please check out my upcoming book titled World on the Brink, How America Can Be China in the Race for the 21st Century. Pre-order links are in the show notes. Have a great day.